I'm so excited you're here. We have so many cool things happening here at Solid Rock. And uh, what Jeremy was describing of this work day that's coming up means that the construction remodel is actually coming to an end. <laughs> it feels like it's been a season of wilderness travel for us, of not knowing what the end was going to be or look like or when that was going to happen, but it's coming closer. And so, yes, July 21st, we have a big cleanup happening and the reason why is because July 29th, we're going to host an open house so that you and the neighborhood, the community can come and see this new space that God has provided through your commitments and your work here at the church that God is doing along with us. And, and it's an exciting time because that down there being remodeled and built for more spaces and testimony that God is active and working solid rock and God is active and working here in West Fort Worth in our community. And for us to have to, the need to create more space like that is just an exciting time. Uh, last Sunday, I had the opportunity to bring to you uh, one of our needs. Um, so far, we've been able to take care of the whole remodel through your giving and tithe and all-in commitments. Um, but right now, we have a need of about $7,000 to finish out the furniture, the technology uh, for our youngest generation. Um, so if God is leading you and you would love to contribute to that in any way, shape, or form, you can do that by noting on your uh, gift of uh, kids remodel on your, on your check, your cash envelope, or online donation. Um, we're not asking you to revisit your, your already, your tithe, or your all-in commitment. You guys have been so faithful in that. We are just asking if this is something God's laid on your heart, that you just remark on their kids remodel, and we'll make sure all of that goes towards finishing out the rest of that room for those kids. So please, if you can't be here, be here July 21st to help us get it set up. But please also be here July 29th in between the services so you can go and see all the cool things that have been done for that and what we're going to be doing for those kids over there as well. Um, transition a little bit. By the way, my name is Nick. If we haven't met, um, I have the honor and privilege of serving as the community and mission pastor here. And um, God transitioned me and my family into that position uh, back in February. We've been here a while, but this position is new, and I love it. I love being here, and I love being with God's people, and I love doing community and mission work here at Solid Rock. If you don't know what that is, community is all about discipleship. It's all about all of us coming together under the name and truth of Christ and growing together, living our life out together. And the goal of that is to grow in Christ and live the mission, which is sharing the gospel in our everyday life with people so that they can come and be part of the biblical community that God has created us to be in. So community is all about discipleship. Our community groups, our discipleship training, um, even our counseling ministry, all of that is geared towards helping people live the life that God has called them to live the work of the sanctification that God has called us as believers that he is not done with us yet so that we can share that same hope with people that they may know what it means to have a relationship with Christ as well. And as we've been going through this series of being a sinner such as I, and we're thinking about Paul being the chief of sinners, and Paul also describes him as the least of the apostles, how many of us in here are daring to say that we have sin in our lives? How many of you are tired and done with it? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm done with it, over it, ready to move on. I am so ready for Christ's solution of eternity with him because 
Sin and death wreak such havoc on our world that I don't even think we fully are able to comprehend how much it affects us on a day-to-day basis. In a moment-to-moment basis, sometimes that we lose sight of how much it impacts us in our day-to-day walk. Even if this is before Christ, maybe you don't even know what it means to have a relationship with Christ, and you just know that there's this weightiness of, of what's wrong with the world, of what's wrong with you. Or maybe you're like me and you've been a believer for a long time and you, you have a story before Christ, but you also have a story now with Christ that sin is still a part of it. And you long for the day for it to be done with. Revelation 21, you know, this is when God's going to wipe away every tear every, from your eye and everything is going to be put to death, all the enemies. But while we're here, God has an exciting ministry of reconciliation and redemption that he's called us as his children, as his believers to be a part of. And to be honest, as much as I look forward to being with Christ one day and having sin and death be put to shame completely, I love being part of the reconciliation. I love being part of the redemption that God is choosing to do through us as a church that he's planted here in West Fort Worth so that others may know the same hope that we have in Christ. So if you're here and you have a relationship with Christ, you're going to hear a lot about how God works in us in that. But if you're also here and you don't have a relationship with Christ, hold on. The, the, the gospel, the truth, the hope we have is coming. If we start thinking about sin, I really want us to consider a few things. Have you ever had a time in your life, and you don't have to raise your hand, maybe just in your heart. Have you ever had a time in your life where you had a sin that you committed, whether it was one time or maybe it was habitual, and you, you pray and you ask God to forgive you, and you intellectually, you're up in your head, you go, I know God forgives me. There's not a sin that he cannot forgive. But in your heart, you wrestle with feeling dirty, shamed, unacceptable, unforgivable, unlovable, unwanted. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe it was something you experienced before Christ. Maybe for like a lot of us, it's something you've experienced in your relationship right now in Christ, a sin that you know God's forgiven you, but you're just having a hard time with how you rest in your new identity in Christ. Or maybe there's a time in your life you can remember that someone committed a sin against you. And they made claims in their actions against you of declaring you unworthy or dirty or unwanted or broken. Because the way they treated you, the the act they used against you was so horrific and sinful, it left you scarred and marred and felt just a shame. So often we have sin in our life that shame is attached to it. And to be honest, whenever sin and death enter into our lives or we act in it or it's acted against us, shame is always right there. The reason we know this is if you go back to Genesis chapter 2 at the very end of creation, you see that Adam and Eve are made and it says they were both together. They were naked and not ashamed. Not ashamed. Perfect creation, perfect relationship with Christ. 
But we know the story that Satan came and he deceives Eve and he deceives Adam and they both willfully choose to eat of the, the, the tree they're not supposed to. And with that, sin entered the world and death entered the world. And if you've been in church long enough, you can kind of go through and you're like, okay, yeah, there's sin, there's death. The earth was cursed. But have we really fully understood the impact that sin had on that day? Because if we look at Adam and Eve, the very first thing they do is they hide themselves. They hide themselves and they cover themselves up because they were now ashamed. The very first thing that came in was sin and death was shame. <coughs> you can go throughout scriptures and you can, you can pinpoint other stories where shame is, or sin is committed by a people group or a person and it brings shame on the other person or it brings shame upon their identity. It's throughout the whole thing. And as I think about shame and sin and I think about what it does is one of the biggest characteristics that sin causes within us is it dehumanizes people. If you've ever thought about how can somebody do that, you think about these just horrific acts of, of sin and violence and you think, how in the world can somebody do that? How can somebody look at somebody else who's made in the image of Christ and willfully choose to sin against them? And the, the answer to that is, is because in our sin, we dehumanize them. We take away that image of Christ in our hearts and our minds, and that's how we're able to act out in those ways that are just considered horrific. Being here in the, in the United States, we've seen awful acts of, uh, of murder and, and just evil. <coughs> but if we were to be honest with ourselves, there have been acts of sin in our own life, whether committed by us or committed by others, that have left scars and mar on the image of Christ that God has given us. I think about dehumanizing, I think about enslavement. If you think about the people of Israel, they have this amazing and crazy story relationship with God, right? So Israel's in Egypt, they're God's chosen people. God made promises back to Abraham and Isaac, and, and God's fulfilling that, you know, making them a great nation. And even though God is fulfilling that in them, Egypt becomes fearful and enslaves them, <clears throat> not wanting them to overcome them, not wanting them to overpower them. They become fearful. And if you consider how long they've been enslaved, at this point in Exodus is where we're going to be, by the way, chapter 14. They've been enslaved for over 400 years. God's chosen people have been enslaved for over 400 years. And if you think about enslavement, maybe you go back to the colonies and you think about how our history as a country began and if you think about Western Europe and how that began and how horrific that really is. Because see, to treat somebody inhumane like that is to dehumanize them. It is to remove the image of Christ and God that they were created in. And you consider that you start telling them the way you treat them that you are worthless, you are a servant, you are disposable, you are not needed, you're a luxury, you have no value, you have no worth. For 400 years, this is the story of Israel of being told this over and over and over again. 
In Exodus chapter 2, though, we see God's response, and we see him to start to respond to Israel and say, I see you in your suffering. And not just I see you, but God's saying, I know the suffering that you're in. So God makes a promise and a claim to Israel in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I'm going to read that for you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out, of, out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give, you, uh, give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. You see, it's been out of whack for about 400 years for Israel. Before because for Israel, their God has been Pharaoh. The person who's controlled and named them and claimed the right over them and how he's going to use them and how he's going to uh, benefit from them, how he's going to control. Think about how, God, how Pharaoh and Egypt controlled the population of Israel. They wiped out a generation. Talk about dehumanizing somebody. But God says, I will take you to be my people. The people who are broken, unacceptable, unloved, forgotten about, cast away, far from God's promises is what they feel like. And God says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. <clears throat> so God begins to work in the life of Moses. Moses having ran from Egypt because why? He killed an Egyptian for dehumanizing a Jewish Hebrew, right? First thing God says is, I want to use you. And Moses is like, you've got the wrong person. He's not saying, hey, no, you're right. I'm worthy. I want to be used by you. I can, I'm public speaking. I've got that. He says, no. But God meets Moses where he's at, and he says, I'm going to use you anyways. And so he sends him. And Moses, before Pharaoh, says, this is what God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh, enraged that he's now being challenged, begins to make life harder for Israel. The bricks they're making, they got to make them without straw. They got to go find the straw themselves. And their quota, still the same. We see the plagues coming in. And as God comes before Pharaoh, laying plague after plague, saying, these are my people, I am their God. Pharaoh tightens his grip more and more and more, claiming that Israel belongs to him and he will not let them go. That he has the right to name them as slaves, that he has the right to claim them as his, work, um, his workforce. But God continually pursues and says, I am their God. These are my people. So we finally hit this epic pinnacle of the Passover, where God declares and says to Moses and to the elders of Israel, I'm going to come in the night, and the firstborn child and the firstborn of every livestock will be wiped out. Now, this whole time we think about Israel, we think about Israel as being the victim, right? We think of them as innocent, that they are being mistreated and misused. They are being mistreated and misused, but they're not innocent. For 400 years, they've been a part of the Egyptian culture. 
they've assimilated themselves into the culture. They've began to believe the lies about themselves that as God declares, I am your God and you are my people, Israel's like, leave us alone, let us die here. The cry they first came saying, God, come rescue us, and then God comes, they start believing the lies against themselves and saying, no, God, just leave us alone and let us be. Like this life we know, we understand, let us die. But God keeps coming back saying, I am your God and you are my people. So we get to the Passover and, and, and the, the case for the fact that God was going to kill the firstborn of every man and every beast was not just true of Egypt, it was also true of Israel. That God was just to be just against Israel just as much as Egypt. But God in his graciousness and his mercy and his story of redemption gives them the Passover lamb, a blood sacrifice for the sins of Israel. So he tells Israel to prepare the lamb, to take the blood, to put it across the doorpost, and he tells them how to cook and prepare it and to wait and, and to be together as the Passover happens. And this is the greatest blow to Pharaoh. For all this time, Pharaoh was just holding on as tight as he can until this moment that God took what he cared about the most. And at this point, Pharaoh and all of Egypt were ready for Israel to go be gone. So much so that when God says, Israel, go and ask for the silver and the gold, that the Egyptians just gave it to them. Like Israel plundered Egypt and took all of their wealth and starts hightailing it out. And this is where we pick up in chapter 14. So they've left. They're all traveling out into the wilderness and Pharaoh is mad. Verse 3 says, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh. And all of his hosts and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. See, God didn't just declare himself as the Lord of Israel. He declared himself Lord over everything. God says, I'm going to get my glory from Pharaoh and the host of Egypt. And so as the Egyptians are now stewing and Pharaoh has been powerful and is considered a God, has consumed withholding his position as such, is now saying, what have I done? Like, why have I let these people go? And with a hardened heart, he gets all of the army and the chariots. We know the story and he goes after them. And the people are in the wilderness, and now they are boxed in. They have the wilderness around them. They have the Red Sea behind them. And we pick up in verse 10, and they, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly, because they still see Pharaoh as a power. And, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said, not help us. Listen to this in verse 11. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would, be, would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die 
in the wilderness. Do you hear the claim that Egypt had over Israel being brought back up? We are worthless. We, this is new. Freedom with the real true God, this is all new. And they're willing to trade it all because of the lies they believe. Just let us go back and serve the Egyptians. We're servants. We're slaves. That's all we'll ever amount to. Let us go back. Why just come out here and die? In verse 13, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. At some point, a lot of us are brought to this place where the sea is at our back and the wilderness is around us and all we can see is our enemies before us. And that's the place where if God doesn't show up, you don't stand a chance. So often in our life, we are met with this crossroads of having to deal with our sin and God calls us out of that. And he brings us into salvation. But even as believers, God will allow us to hit certain points of suffering and certain points of dealing with sin in our lives and the sin of the lives around us. And he brings us to a point that we don't stand a chance unless God shows up. And God puts us in a place of dependency. Because see, Israel, even though being uh, slaves and, and living in that shame had become prideful and puffed up, now telling God what to do telling God, this is how we fix the situation. We go back and we become servants again. We tell them we're, we're sorry and it'll never happen. We'll just call the whole thing off. But God met them where they didn't stand a chance. Pride enters in, and I, I'm curious, as we have been talking, if the Holy Spirit has been revealing different things, shame or sin in your life that you've hidden down deep, that you've started to cover up, from a long time ago, maybe it's recent and you're in the midst of this. Sin that has happened to you or sin that you've committed that you're so ashamed of it, the identity it now places on your life that you just cover it up. And phrases like, I'm forgiven, but they would never love me if they knew. I'm forgiven, but if they knew my secret, they wouldn't want me. They don't know me like I know me. Or God doesn't know me like I know me. That there's nothing I can do to overcome the enemy in my life. But God proves his claim over Israel again. In verse 27, at this point in the story, Israel has now watched God spread, split open the Red Sea. They've now made it to the other side. And now they're looking back. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the, and the sea returned to its normal course. When the morning appeared, as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Verse 28. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, and not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. This whole time, Pharaoh has been acting as God over Israel, naming and claiming him for himself. But in this moment again, God declares 
that he is their God and he will have his glory. Remember back to verse 4 in Exodus 14 where it says that God will have his glory over Pharaoh and the host. It wasn't just that God was declaring himself king and God of Israel. God was declaring that also to the enemy. And if we see right here in verse 28, there was not one that remained. That they were swallowed up. Verse 30 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel the day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see, with sin and shame and your identity being wrapped up in those things, we often miss that he is Lord. Plague after plague, deliverance after deliverance, Israel continues to doubt and rest in what they know or believe what is true of them, even though it's a lie. And we can keep reading in Exodus, and we will see Israel fail again, over and over and over again. But in this moment and in those other moments, we see God come alongside Israel, claim them as his own, and say, I am your Lord. So often we believe that Old Testament scripture is a different God, that that is not the same God that we live with now, that somehow he operates differently, that you don't have this story. But I would argue that most of us do have this story, where sin and shame by ourselves or by others, God met us in that and has met us in it time and time again and he has named you as his own, and he has claimed you as his own, and has declared that he is your God. If you look in the New Testament, we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is where God does this for us. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You see that? It's not you were forgiven, but you're still the same old sorry sack. It's you're now a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. This is from God. Why is that important? Because it's not from Pharaoh. It's not from our enemies. It's not from our shame. This is from God, who through Christ reconciled himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ. See that new name he gave us? That new position? God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we may become the righteousness of God. The very thing that he was placed to death on was the most grotesque, humiliating act of shame to be crucified naked in front of family, friends, and the world to see. He took the very humiliation and shame that we deserved because of our sin, and he traded that for your righteousness. That the very thing he had, the very glory that he had from the Father in heaven, willfully laid himself down so that you and I can experience that. He defeated our enemies. 
He's removed our shame. We don't have to willfully walk in that. And church, here's where I want us to really think about how do we remove this shame? First off, we need to be walking in transparency. And I'm not just saying like we've messed up. I've sinned again. Courageous, vulnerable transparency. Taking off those shame covers. Those things that we've used to functionally serve and soothe our hearts and our soul, whether it's pornography or drinking or drugs or binge-watching Netflix TV. That touched a nerve. (laughs) It's time to start removing those things we've hid, all of that deep down. Not because God's not able and God's powerful and we or somehow got him in a headlock but because we are inviting him into where we hurt the deepest, where our identity has been marred the most, where we struggle to receive his forgiveness and say, this is where I'm at. I need help. Because we've all experienced sin from ourselves and others that have left us in that place of feeling unworthy. This just came to my mind. How often has God called you to walk in faith And because of your sin and shame, you said, I can't do that. I've got to get right first. I've got to figure all this stuff out down here, the stuff that I cannot deal with on my own. And we've said, no, God, I'm a servant and a slave to this. I can't. Shame cannot exist within gracious relationships and community, biblical community. We were not meant to be alone, folks. We were meant to be in community together. Sin and shame creates isolation and space. And we become distant not only to God, but to others around us. And God's asking you to step out in that transparency, to to be able to name and, and share where you're actually struggling and be at. And God's willing and ready to remove that shame from your life. And as we close and and we start thinking about a response to God, I don't know where you're at. I don't know your story. In a moment, you're going to hear my story. Um, God wants to meet you in your sin and shame. God God doesn't believe the lies that Christians should have it together or that we often look at the eyes of people around us to dis- determine like whether we have worth or value and we compare ourselves constantly. God wants to meet you wherever you're at. And I pray that God would be able to re- reveal some of the ways you've hidden that from yourself because it's just so painful to deal with. The way you've hidden that from your spouse or, or your biblical community because it's just a place you don't want to go. And maybe you've had an issue with trusting that God can meet you there and he can be your Lord and claim you for his own like he did for Israel and like he's done for me in my life. Step out in transparency. Shine the light on that dark spot that you are afraid to share. Let's walk in biblical community together. That's why we're doing this whole series. If you haven't had a relationship with Christ, and this is all new and all different, you're not really sure what to think of this, but you know right now that God's revealing that you are in need of a Savior, that you have 
hurt in your life. You have shame in your life. Like you have condemnation in your life. And God is moving and stirring in your heart. You're not exactly sure what that is. And you want to know what it means to have a relationship with God. We would love for you to come forward. Our prayer partners are going to be up here at the front and over here by our prayer rooms. We would love for you to meet with them. They are ready and prepared to have that conversation with you. Here in a moment, we're going to watch my video. And we'll have a time of response and worship. And the band will be up here. Just as we're doing this, just be faithful to listen to the Holy Spirit right now. And just be faithful to respond however he's calling you. So at this time, let's watch that video. Hi, my name is Nick Hill. My family and I have been part of the Solid Rock family for almost five years. And I've had the honor and privilege of serving on staff for about two and a half. When I look back at my life and I look at how God has impacted it, I was blessed to be a part of a family that was always at church. Um, I prayed to receive Christ by help of my parents. I, I wanted to know what it meant to be saved. I wanted to know what you did with the sin that was in your life. And although being seven years old, um, there was a need for Christ in my life. Growing up in the church was a huge part of my life. I was a part of the church from a young age, even after becoming a believer at seven, we were always there. It didn't matter if it was Sunday morning, Wednesday night, the church was open, we were gonna be there. We were always part of kids ministry and student ministry, special events. God and the church was a huge part of my life growing up. But as I grew in Christ and my desire to know him and serve him grew, there was an element of me, though, that I didn't fully understand sanctification, that I didn't fully understand how the gospel played a part in my life as a believer. For so long, I believed that the gospel was for lost people, that those who needed Christ and his salvation, that's what the gospel was there for, that they needed to understand what God did for them so that they could be saved and have a relationship with him. And so whenever I think about testimonies or strong believers and leaders in the church, sin in your life was always before Christ. And after Christ, sin seemed to not be a part of that anymore. We were rescued. We were saved. And so I never heard testimony of people who were mature believers who struggled with sin. In fact, if you claimed to be a Christian and you struggled with sin, you were looked at as less than, that maybe your salvation was in question because how could you continue to live in sin when you have Christ in you? And so this great pressure and temptation to believe in this untruth that you have to live perfectly as a believer began to sink in, and I took hold to that lie. And so as I grew up in the church, I started to believe this idea that to be a mature Christian meant to not have sin in my life. And obviously this was not something I could obtain. And so as I would walk with Christ, yet choose sin, shame and guilt would just come crashing down on me. So when I think about the intense emotions that come with feeling shame, I begin to learn how to process and cope with it on my own. One of the things that I learned to do was to replay different events or scenarios where I had failed or sinned and think about 
all the ways I could have done it differently so that maybe whenever I, the next time it comes around, I'll be prepared, that I will somehow have figured it out or mastered that area of my life. Or even on a bigger scale would often rerun my whole entire life in my mind and my heart of what it would have looked like to never have sinned, to never have fallen or failed as a believer, to never have the shame and the guilt that I felt so often as a believer. And that was the way I coped with it. It was a way to soothe that suffering that I felt within my heart that I was looking inside of myself to do that. And it would often spread into other areas of my life. As a student, I would think what it would look like to be the perfect student, to be without failure, to be without fault. Then I would also think about what it would mean whenever I got married to be the perfect husband, to lead my wife biblically and spiritually and to be amazing that other people would just want to follow after my example. And the same thing as I would think about what it would mean to be a father, to just be that dad that knew what the right thing to do every single time, that I would never get angry or lose my temper and I'd always have wisdom for my kids. Those are things that I would fantasize and just meditate on all the time as I thought about what it would look like to have a life that was shame and guilt-free. It even entered in whenever I surrendered to the ministry at seminary or as a pastor of what it would look like to be without fault, without blame, without shame. And the issue that I kept coming up with is that I was looking within myself to soothe the suffering and the hurt I was feeling from the sin that I had committed in my own life and even the sins that I felt from other people that affected me. And I did not understand what it meant to be sanctified, to be covered in grace as a believer and to allow the gospel to be true, not just when I was seven years old, but every single day of my life. And I failed to trust in who Christ was and that what he did was perfect and complete. I failed to rest and trust in God's word of what he said was true about what he had done and who he was, but also what was true of me, that I was a sinner saved by grace and that I was in need of that grace every single day. And it wasn't until later in life when I started really trusting in that truth in God's word through teaching and through reading and through really stepping out and trusting the community of God and living a life of transparency and confessing that, hey, I don't have it all together, that I need help, that I am still in process of being sanctified and that it was okay to admit where I was because the God of the universe who saved me was faithful and willing to meet me where I was at, not just when I was seven years old, but every single day of my life as still somebody who is in need of grace, in need of forgiveness, to be justified. And only God can do that. And so as I think about my life on a daily basis now, I'm not a perfect husband. I'm not a perfect father. I'm not a perfect pastor, perfect counselor, I am not a perfect believer, but God meets me where I'm at on a daily basis. And oftentimes he comes after me because I need him to be that savior. And so I can walk in transparency. 
I can rest in his grace and his forgiveness because of his work on the cross, God has the right to name and claim me for himself. That shame and guilt no longer have a power over me. That I do not have to submit myself willingly to those lies and deception. But I can rest in the truth of who God is, what he has done, and what he is faithful to complete in me.